and love is all that I can give to you. Love is more than just a game for two. Two in love can make it. Take my heart and please don't break it. Love was made for me and you. Welcome to Love Savers Radio, ministering the blessings of covenant. This is Walter and Sandy Fox from Love Savers Ministry, called by God to minister the blessings of the marriage covenant by enriching, encouraging, strengthening, and praying for the healing of marriages, especially marriages in crisis. Hi, Love Savers listeners. This is Keith Davis, the proprietor of the Golden Pear Cafes. As I enter my 30th year of marriage, I encourage you to seek the Lord's guidance and wisdom for your marriage, for He is the one who can help you day by day in building a lifetime of peace, joy, fond memories, and a beautiful family. When Anne walked into the Golden Pear to apply for a job as Golden Pear's first pastry chef, I had no idea that God had brought my future wife and mother of our three children literally to my front door. But that is exactly what he did. And although we have had our challenges and ups and downs, God has richly blessed our marriage and he gets the glory for our 30 years together. So I encourage you to seek God's will and use Love Savers as a resource to improve and bless your marriage. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Mark chapter 10, verse 9. Today's guest author is Meg Wilson. She wrote the book, Hope After Betrayal. Meg says countless women have been blindsided by their husband's sexual addiction. It's a shocking discovery that can leave women feeling hurt, ashamed, and even guilty. Combining scripture and her own experience, Wilson reassures her readers that there is hope and healing after betrayal. Sandy talks with Meg Wilson today about her book, Hope After Betrayal, Healing when sexual addiction invades your marriage. Let's listen. Hi, Meg. Hello, Sandy. We're going to discuss your book, Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. What would you say to those who feel that pornography is just a harmless male entertainment? Well, I'd say that they're perhaps not looking at the issue globally. It's not harmless when you consider all of the ramifications. In other words, most of the time, not always, there's a wife who is devastated by that or a partner. If it's, a, if it's not only men who, who view pornography, so the husband may not agree. Then you've got the whole aspect of the people that are involved. There's so much trauma and abuse around the industry. Then you've got the fact that anyone who's viewing and consuming it is, is part of the demand, which then creates a demand for things like sex trafficking, um, prostitution, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look at all of the tentacles that come out of that and the ways in which 
lives are changed, minds are changed in terms of the way they people view other people as objects. It's it's just it's just destruction after destruction. So I, I kind of find it interesting that people can think that it's harmless. Maybe when it's just you in your room and you think I'm not hurting anybody, but that's probably denial and a very myopic point of view. And of course, one of the other sad things about it is that it's extremely addictive. It can be. Why doesn't every man who views pornography become addicted? Well, in the same way that not every man who ha- takes a drink becomes an alcoholic, it's it's when it becomes out of control and when it becomes a behavior that it becomes a compulsion. So that means repeated use and and the reason why we're the person is viewing it. So. Um, if it becomes a way of medicating pain, which is what typically most addictions are about medicating pain, it really isn't about the alcohol, the drugs, or the pornography. It's that they've found this way, and in the case of pornography, they've found their body chemistry. They can use the endorphins and kaplans and all the things that happen in your body when you're aroused, and that becomes a way of medicating pain. It seems counterintuitive because most people think of sex as something that's enjoyable, but when anything becomes in the realm of of now an addiction, it becomes this vicious cycle of I need it to get my fix to, to... make the pain go away temporarily, but then, of course, the pain comes back with a ferocious appetite, and then you repeat the cycle. So it really is insanity. Most addictions have a poor success rate and higher failure rate. So where is the hope that you talk about? Oh, well, you know, it's interesting. The hope, of course, is in Christ. We minister to wives. We minister specifically to wives and not necessarily to the addicts. So the hope for the wife is that they can find hope and healing in Christ, regardless of what their husband does or doesn't do with his addiction. So that's that's where the hope is. There, of course, is hope for the addict as well if they really, truly are seeking after healing and wholeness. But it is a, it is a hard road, and it's, there's not an easy answer. And I know a lot of addicts cry out to God and say, hey, take this away from me. They feel, many feel that God has left them. But they, there's an important part of the process. When you become an addict, you begin to live in the world of me. That means um, you, there's a huge idol in your life. God is put on the sidelines. So in order to really, truly embrace healing, we have to, we have to lay down that idol. We have, to, we have to be willing to be humble and say, I have a problem. We have to confess not only to God, but we have to confess to others. That's clearly in the scripture. And that's the piece where addicts, there's so much shame, they don't want to. They don't, they don't want to take that step. They want God to just magically take it away. But of course... That's not always how he works. Right. And as you mention in the book, oftentimes there are failures along the way also. Like we've heard it said, slips, right? Do men become addicted because their wives are somehow not fulfilling their needs sexually? 
Oh my goodness, that's probably one of the most destructive misconceptions about sexual addiction. And um, I would say a couple of things. First is the wife is not responsible for any choice that the husband makes. And then second, would you say to the wife of an alcoholic, if you only gave your husband more fresh water, he would not be an alcoholic? Of course we wouldn't say that, but that's the equivalent of trying to tie um, the wife's behavior to the husband's choices. Now, we, we can pray for our husbands. We can, there are things that we can do, obviously, to help or, or hurt a situation, but the bottom line is an addict's choices are the addicts. That's true. How can you or any woman be sure that her husband is healed and free from relapse? You know, I think that you just, it's, it's this journey. And I, we, in the beginning, we, we encouraged the wives to believe behavior because addicts often they've been lied to for years. So the words have lost their potency. So we believe behavior. And then the, the next part for me was recognizing that I could never be everywhere my husband was. I could never know 100% what he was doing all the time, but God could. So there needed to be a shifting of me wanting to put my complete trust in him and shifting that instead to putting my complete trust in Christ and knowing that, that no matter what was going on, God knew and God would reveal it to me. And I, after walking with hundreds of women, I can tell you he is faithful to that. And my husband used to joke in the beginning about if I were to slip, you probably would know before I do <laughs> because I was connected to the Lord and I was listening to what he was telling me. And when I, my husband travels, so that was a really difficult time for me and I would feel that fear grip. And of course the enemy would stir it up and say, well, you don't know where he is. And I just, I, ha I was like, Lord, how do I live with this? And that's what I felt like he said. He's like, Meg, you're trying to put your trust in your husband, and you've got to put your trust in me. You've got to know that wherever he is, I am as well, and that I will, that I will let you know what you need to know. And so, I, you know, I will always live with a, man, with a man who could betray me in the wrong day, in the weak moment. I will always live with that. And I, I could live in fear, but that would not be um, living in victory because I also know that I serve a loving God who's, who's holding me in his righteous right hand and who is keeping an eye out for me and listening to my prayers and watching what's going on. So that's where I have to have my trust. Amen. We can, uh, well, in your book, Hope After Betrayal, you avoid the details of your husband's addiction. Why were you so careful to leave them out? Well, there's a couple reasons, Sandy. First of all, those details are really not mine to share. And in writing the book, the last thing I want to do is injure my husband. And then the second thing is that it's really important for women to, to know only enough to know that I understand their pain. As far as the details, my hope and my prayer is that they put their own details into their story because the important 
part is not the details. I, I feel like that could just be feeding the voyeuristic nature of human beings. That was never the goal. The goal was to always point ever back to Christ, the healing and the hope and the wholeness and all of the things that are available through him and let them put their own details into the story. Yes. When a wife says her husband and herself are not connected, what do you think that means? Gosh, there's any number of, of things. I think that, that all marriages go through a time of disconnection when, when um, just based on the stressors of life and the seasons of life, and, and I think it's very difficult to connect when you have young children. You have to be really intentional because there's so many demands. So not connecting can be fairly benign. But it can also mean that there's a break in the covenant that right. we have two self we have two selfish individuals that are no longer seeking to serve each other. And so of course there's no connections. I always say it's important to be spiritually connected and emotionally connected first and then out of that physical connect, physical connection flows. But of course in the world it's all about it's all about the sex, it's all about the physical. But I don't I don't I think we're missing we we take something that's very grand and great that God created and we 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 um whittle it down to something very base and narrow. And that would that's unsatisfying. Right. What age is often the age when this porn addiction often starts? Surprisingly. Gosh, I, yeah, surprisingly yeah, right. it's very young and it's getting getting younger. My husband was 10 when he found his father's pornography. I've heard as young as five. And in, in this culture, now in my husband's generation, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have stuff available on phones. And so it was harder to, to get access to pornographic material. I've seen a shift in the last 10 years of men, younger men, going deeper and farther faster because they're, it's like they have access now to crack cocaine, you know, at the touch of a button. So it's it's concerning. It is concerning. So it's very young. Very young, unlike you would mm -hmm. ever think. Would you share your opinion? Um, you talk about, you know, the discovery of this and how anger can come up and all the other emotions. And one of the things, aside from, of course, as you mentioned before, crying out to the Lord for help, and just saying, help me, God, like Romans 10, 11, 13, you mentioned. Would you share your opinion in talking about journaling? Oh, I, yeah, I think journaling is just such a great outlet. It's a way of taking the emotions and sort of the ethereal smoke in our brain and taking it and putting it into a tangible form. There's something about the process of taking your thoughts and putting them into a written format or sometimes a creative format. I've seen people use creative journaling, artistic collage, that kind of thing. But just it's a way of, of putting putting things that are not really concrete down into a concrete form. And then also in that process, by getting them out of our brain, 
there's an opportunity for us to sit back, look at it, process it, and invite the Holy Spirit in to give us his perspective about what we're thinking, what we're feeling. Because feelings can be based in truth, but they are not always the truth. And so it's feelings are really, um, they're just those warning lights on the dashboard. It's an opportunity to say, okay, Lord, what's, what is this really about? And, and is there something I need to check on under the hood? Right. How were you made to feel? You talked about at one point you felt irrationally jealous. Irrationally blessed? Jealous. J-E-L-L-U-S. Which goes I was confused. I didn't think. Yeah, it goes along with a lot of things you talked about, like the other women, right. et cetera. But right. when you know that right, something right. like that's going on with your husband, it kind of causes anger and other yes. feelings that seem to be irrational, right? Absolutely, yeah. There's There's always a strong reaction, I think, it can take many forms, or all forms, at different times. There might be a time when you, when a woman, gets irrationally jealous about any any woman in in their peripheral. But then there can also be this um, turn where you you be, try to become a detective and you check on everything and you check on their devices, and that's an unhealthy. Um, it can be you can be almost manic, like you feel like you have to find out find out how he's lying to you, which is very different from that gentle nudge of the Holy Spirit that might say, hey, you might want to take a look at that. Right. That it, feels very different. Right. And then also you can become, right, you can yeah. also become overly needy where you, it's like restaking your territory, where it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to be overly available to my husband. So I think when, when we when we are faced with this kind of a trauma, yeah. there's all kinds of trauma responses. Mm -hmm. What changed your opinion about the kinds of women that are betrayed? Oh, I think I think that if we try to apply logic, logic would say that that, that somehow the woman deserved it. That a that a good man wouldn't walk away from a good woman. So if we try to apply logic, then you may think, well, the kind of woman is going to be unattractive or, and that could be physically or just um, personality, not a very nice person. I think those are some of the places that people tend to go, unfortunately, because it, nothing could be farther from the truth. I think the first time I walked into a group that was around this topic. There was probably 30 or 40 women. And I looked around and I thought, wow, first of all, they're all beautiful. And then second of all, there were so many because the other lie is I'm the only one. Somehow I, I got stuck with this and, you know, why, Lord? And then you realize, gosh, no, there's, there's a huge sisterhood out there. We just may not have met them all. And, um, so I think just having, it's like anything, once you've walked the path, then your your view is very different than someone describing to you or you trying to figure out where it's going. And what did you, you know, eventually think about and what do you think about the women who are involved in this? 
pornography. Oh gosh, in the beginning, yeah, in the beginning, I was very angry. Yeah, very angry. I was if I saw a woman who was provocatively dressed, I would, I would be judgmental and think, gosh, you know, doesn't she know what she's doing? And you know, I love how gentle God is with us. I, I was, we were out somewhere at a the outdoor venue and I walked up to a vendor to purchase something and it was a woman who was, had a lot of makeup and her blouse was quite cut quite low and I felt that rage come out inside of me and I and I just heard that little voice that certainly didn't come from me and it just said I wonder I wonder what pain in her life has caused her to believe that she needs to draw attention to herself in that way. And I realize now that there's, we live in a broken world and we're all going to experience brokenness and trauma. And for some it looks like this and for others it looks like that. And even the women that get caught up in this industry, so many have come from a trauma background. I now know so many are, are having to use drugs and alcohol just to get through the day. I guarantee you that if you asked the men and women involved in the industry if they had another choice, a better choice, would they have taken it? I think that if they were honest, they would all say yes. So it's just the brokenness that begets brokenness that begets brokenness. So it doesn't do me any good to judge them. Um, I have to recognize that they're just part of there's just part of this broken world that we live in. Uh-huh. Would you tell us a little bit about your opinion about boundaries? Oh, I think boundaries are that's probably one of the most profound tools that I gained in this process. I was very much a a helper, a say yes, a doer, and um, meet the needs of others before you meet the needs of yourself. And through this process, God's really shown me that that's not that's not His plan or His purpose. That there is a time and a place for boundaries. Christ had boundaries, and um, He wasn't a doormat. And I remember when I was beginning to teach the women in our group about boundaries, I was wrestling in my spirit because I'm like, Lord, how do I, how do I reconcile boundaries with the fact that with the scripture that says, turn the other cheek, forgive 70 times seven, and don't just walk a mile, walk five miles, and don't just give them your coat, give them your shirt. And I could go on and on, you know, as if God didn't remember his word. <laughs> but I was wrestling, I was wrestling with that. And I just, again, heard that little small voice in my mind. And he just said, Meg, you forget, I decide. He was saying that these are not blanket statements. But he said, there will come a time when I'm going to ask you to do that. And it's probably going to be not when you want to, but it's going to be when you need to. And he said, but for you to apply these scriptures blanketly across every every situation is a misuse of the truth. He says, because I'm the only one who knows when you do that, when you go that extra step, when you do that extra gift, that it will bring glory to me, not to you. And it was just, it just really completely shifted my perspective and enabled me to see that there's a time and a place for both. There's a time and a place for lavish gifts of self-service. There is a time and a place that will bring glory to God. But there's also a time and a place when in order not to enable somebody else's unhealth, I need to say, do you want to be healed? I need to say, go and sin no more. There, there are times when God made very 
very specific um, boundaries. So, yeah, it's it's powerful. I think every woman in the church should read the boundaries book every year. It's really powerful. Right. What is the, well, you talked about this before, but what do you think is the purpose of anger? And what are some of the underlying reasons? And how are we to handle it? How are we told publicly? Um, yeah. Anger, actually, I grew up in a home where anger was not okay, so my anger went underground because to be angry was to be disrespectful. So I didn't do well with anger. I'm actually kind of impressed with the women who can come in and and just be angry right up front because anger can actually be very productive. Christ got angry. The Word doesn't say don't be angry. It says in your anger do not sin. So anger in and of itself is God-given. It can be a door to sin, so we have to be careful. The other thing I've learned about anger is it's it's not a primary emotion. It's usually there's something, like you said, underlying, like shame or pain or, um, you know, some other kind of hurt. There's some other underlying. So the anger, again, is that emotion. It's that red warning light that says, okay, what is this about? What am I really feeling? For me, my anger is almost always tied to being hurt. And so I have to back up and say, okay, where where did the injury occur? Was there a boundary that I didn't put in place, or do I need to put a boundary in place? So, yeah, anger is its actually a very powerful and productive emotion when it's, when it's um, used appropriately. Right. Would you talk to us yeah. about your discovery of the thinking it over step related to anger? Oh, the thing- yes. The, think, the thinking it over. Yeah. I think a lot of times, especially people with explosive anger, yeah. don't don't realize that there is a space between the anger and the explosive response, whether that's verbally or, or otherwise. So realizing that there is, I mean, even when with kids sometimes we teach them count to three, part of that is learning to create a space between the emotion and the action because they really are two different things. And when somebody who has a pattern of, of anger, that's, that's a hard concept. They'll kind of look at you like, are you really? There's a space. There really is a space. So being able to stop to feel the emotion and then find a space, whether it's three seconds in the beginning or just a, a, a place in the middle to wait and listen, that's the point in which we have to figure out, okay, what is this anger really tied to before I say or do something that could be extremely destructive? Yes. Um would yeah. you tell our listeners your website, Meg, and where they can um, get your book and other resources, please? Oh, thank you, Sandy. Be happy to. We are found at www.hopeafterbetrayal.com. All the information about remote and local groups are there, as well as there's a store for purchasing books or workbooks. The book is also available at um, on Amazon or Christian Christian booksellers. So, and the new book, the revised and expanded edition, is is coming out. I think in the next month or so. Good. So we've been out ten ten years. We're kind of excited about that. Yeah, that's good. I love your metaphors throughout, and one of them I'd love to read to our listeners. It's in your chapter nine, entitled "Prisms: Accepting mm-hmm. God's Design." 
Once the rays of God's love are allowed to penetrate the heart, the old gloomy pits are flooded with light. We climb out of darkness, lit up by God's grace, and start to spread a little of that light ourselves, like sunlight through a prism, Christ's love when held up to the raindrops in our hearts, in refracted into new colors, sparkles of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The significance of God's rainbow in the book of Genesis is his promise. His promises become personal to me as I feel his intimate care in the hard times. Now, when I see a colorful arc paint, our northwest sky, I thank God for his love, grace, and hope. Oh, thank you for that hope, Meg. And thank you for your beautiful metaphors throughout. And may you be blessed. And we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Is your marriage in crisis? Are you or your spouse struggling to stay together? Could you be in need of Christian counseling that will provide biblical solutions and prayer for the restoration and healing of your marriage? This is Sandy and Walter Fox from Love Savers Ministry. We have experienced the devastation of divorce and understand the pain of a marriage in crisis. But here's the good news. God restored our failed marriage. After seven years of divorce, we have faith that God can heal your marriage. God hates divorce. We have seen marriages restored by the Lord. So if you're looking for anointed marriage counseling, Call us today at 631-604-6397. That's 631-604-6397.